Uh, good afternoon. If you have your Bibles, you could be turning to the book of Hosea, and we will begin there in just a moment. Again, we're grateful that you are here. We have uh, joked about the afternoon service that uh, there's a challenge for the preacher sometimes. Sometimes it's maybe been the heat, just the warmth in here, which feels pretty good this afternoon, but maybe the warmth makes folks tired. We've uh, joked about full stomachs uh, after lunch, making everyone tired. Uh, but the greatest challenge that maybe the preacher faces now is that Gary and Sandra's granddaughter is here, and that makes it really hard then to get, uh, keep attention, but we're thankful to see Emma, uh, thankful that she's here, and uh, to see her parents too, they're here as well. Uh, I did ask Luke, and he said he's got a, does have a trip coming up soon, uh, so we won't always want to pray for him and his travel and the work down in Haiti, uh, but we're thankful that they're with us this afternoon. Look forward to a few moments of study. This afternoon, we're going to pick up with the book of Hosea, and we're moving on to the minor prophets. I know that you can't usually make out uh, small letters here, but the middle shelf of the bookshelf here that we've used each time to introduce our Book of the Month Club, and the right-hand side, as you look at it, are blue-colored books, uh, but list for us the minor prophets. And we've moved all the way through the Old Testament and worked our way all the way up to the minor prophets here. And we just want to make the point as we begin that, of course, we call them the minor prophets, but they are not minor in importance, only in length. And that's just kind of always been the thing, that there is a set of major prophets, longer books, minor prophets, shorter books, and that's about the only difference. I will say makes my job a little easier uh, for the next few months because uh, it's easier to cover 14 or less chapters uh, rather than it is sometimes these 60-chapter books uh, kind of thing or, or something that's a lot longer. Uh, it's a little easier to kind of sum up and try to learn some lessons from these uh, minor prophet books that will be coming up in front of us, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Most of you are familiar with your Bible, uh, and we think about really the back half, I guess, or back part of the Old Testament there. The Jews called them the Book of the Twelve, uh, and so that was kind of the, the grouping there of the minor prophets, and we look forward to learning some lessons. And as I was thinking a few moments ago, let me challenge you uh, just one more time to remember uh, that it's easy, I think, sometimes for a person who is not as studied in the Old Testament, and by the way, uh, can I raise my hand and say that, that I spent a lot of my life not as knowledgeable of the Old Testament timeline as I should have been. Uh, I can name the characters, so to speak, the people that are a part of it. Uh, I could, you know, kind of talk in general about some things. Um, but if you're not as familiar with the timeline of the United Kingdom and the Divided Kingdom, it's easy to take your Bible in the Old Testament and move to the back and think that it's a simple timeline. Uh, you know, that we start in Genesis, but we move forward, and that's just kind of the timeline through these books. But let me challenge you to remember that, of course, these prophets that are at the end are actually happening and occurring during the times of the Kings and the Chronicles, those books there. And so there can be a much richer, deeper study to go through it that way. There's lots of other uh, books in our library, even other sermons online maybe or videos that would help you put those things into context. You could spend a, a good amount of time, not you know weeks on weeks, but, but some hours or part of a week looking through some of these as we go through it. And it really helps uh, to think about that in those ways. So we're going to move, move forward to the minor prophets here. But, all, but as always, the minor prophets are simply pointing towards the Messiah. They're pointing out God's majesty, his holiness, his righteousness, and his justice, and all of it's leading towards the Messiah and the coming of Jesus. Hosea means Jehovah saves or Jehovah is salvation. Uh, it's a form of Joshua or even Jesus uh, is the kind of the form of the word there, Hosea. Uh, he is a man of deep and fervent feelings. 
Uh, he's a gentleman is the way that we kind of describe him. And it's interesting is we're going to come back in a couple of months and talk about Amos. Sometimes Hosea is pictured as this gentle man, this deep, fervent man, fervent in feelings. And Amos is presented as a bit of a rugged man. And that's not necessarily good or bad, but there's a contrast there. But sometimes it can be that Amos is rugged and Hosea is a weakling. Uh, but there is an emphasis on love in the book of Hosea, but also on God's justice. And with Amos, there's an emphasis on God's justice, but there is also a little bit about God's love. And so we just want to remember that, excuse me, as we think about these, uh, these prophets. Hosea was from the northern kingdom. I didn't put that in your notes, but if you kind of have a listing of those or think about it, Hosea is from the northern kingdom. Life was good during this time for the northern kingdom. And by good, I mean that they were doing well economically. Uh, their economy was good but they were rotten spiritually, which is sometimes what happens, right? Even to us, we are not a nation, but our own family sometimes, our own person. We become a person or a family who's doing well in an economic sense, and we start becoming rotten in the spiritual sense. Life was good for the nation at that time in the days of Jeroboam II in the northern kingdom, and it's just interesting that one other note here about Hosea is that he is the only writer or prophet that pro was a prophet from the northern kingdom who prophesied to the northern kingdom. And what I mean by that is, is as you look at the prophets, they were often sometimes switched around. Maybe they were from the northern kingdom, but they would go to the southern kingdom to prophesy or vice versa. But in this case, uh, Hosea is the only prophet from the northern kingdom that preached primarily to the northern kingdom kingdom and it's interesting to note that he was he probably lived to see the fall of the northern kingdom to Assyria and the kind of the results of what he had been preaching about and so not a lot of his background we're going to get to more about his current situation in just a moment uh, but a little bit maybe about who the man was and what was going on during that time I have a brief outline for you it's really two major points uh, the first one being a breakdown of the book is chapters 1 through 3, which is Hosea's marriage. Uh, Hosea was uh, married to a person, to a woman by the name of Gomer, who was his wife and also a prostitute. And uh, we read about this marriage, which is going to be an example. We'll get there in just a second. I'll go ahead and give you this outline before we delve into it too much. Uh, but Hosea's marriage is depicted here. And by sort of in a similar way, it points out the state of the nation of Israel. They were in moral, spiritual, and political unfaithfulness. And we see that with Israel and God at this time. Hosea's marriage is chapters 1 through 3. And then the back half of the book is Hosea's message. So his marriage first and then his message, which is chapters... Some people break it down in verses... Uh, excuse me, chapters 4 through 13, with chapter 14 being a little different in that it shows... Uh, the renewal of God's covenant with his people or his promise, I guess, if you will. It's that ray of hope. If you study the prophets, usually at the end, there is a ray of hope with all the prophets. And chapter 14 can sometimes be broken off to, it, to reveal that, that God's promise of renewal is there in chapter 14. And we see that uh, here that there is a nation of people, the children of Israel, the northern kingdom, who are morally unfaithful spiritually unfaithful and politically unfaithful to God and so they are in need of this message and they're in need of turning 
And uh, so it's important that we think about that. Now, what we said just a moment ago from Hosea's marriage is that Hosea was a living message to God's people. So the first three chapters deal with his marriage to Gomer. And the problem is, as you see in the beginning of the book, in verse number 2, chapter 1 and verse 2, the Lord speaks to Hosea and says, Go take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. As we see through the first three chapters, Gomer is constantly devoting herself to other loves, if you will, in quotation marks, other loves. And it's personal for Hosea. He's going to understand this unfaithfulness on a whole nother level. He knows how God feels because his wife leaves every night and he is in essence begging for her attention. Now we know that God doesn't beg in the sense uh, for our attention or for their attention but there's this longing for God is longing for us and for the children of Israel to be faithful to him and so Hosea is going to be a living message to God's people he's not just going to preach this message of repentance this message of coming back to God he is actually going to live it and going to show people and help us understand on a different level help them understand on a different level what it means to be unfaithful to God and to that relationship. So Hosea is a great prophet because of this living message that he has before the people. The key word of the book, we might say, is return. God is calling Israel to return. When we get to this point in the northern kingdom in history, you know, we sometimes use words, I, I do it, I may even in a few moments, just kind of out, out of habit, but we sometimes use words, especially in our invitation or extending of the invitation, that we have wandered away. And we sometimes uh, use words like maybe a person has fallen away. That's not incorrect, I don't mean to, to show that or to say that, but at this point, Israel is not or has not wandered away. They've not exactly fallen away. They are full out running away from God with their commitment to idolatry, their commitment to unfaithfulness. They are running away from him, and God is calling Israel to return, a message that is preached time and time again by the prophets on behalf of God, spokespeople, spokesmen for God, preaching this message of return. We might say if we were to try to define a purpose of the book, that the purpose, or the book in a nutshell, would be to break the hearts of God's people. We might, again, talk in our terms, in terms we use today, to say that it was to convict or to convince them. Let me call your attention again to David and the life of David as he goes through his sinful ways with Bathsheba and, of course, Uriah. When the prophet Nathan comes to David, what does he do? But he gives him this personal example. Do you recall that Nathan tells him the story uh, of the king who would take away the, the poor man's one little lamb? And it stirs emotion within David to, then, to the point that Nathan's able to point out his sin. That's certainly a similar case here. God is going to use Hosea and the living example of Hosea's marriage to call the people to return to break their hearts so that hopefully they would see what they have done. And when we think about our lives, it sometimes comes to that. And sometimes it comes to a, a place where two people in a relationship, maybe it's something we call it rock bottom, the idea, but some kind of terrible example that helps us and helps others understand just how bad things are. 
And the purpose of the book, we might say, would be to break the hearts of God's people, convict them to return, as we said just a moment ago. Now, if you have your Bible open there, uh, one other thing to make note of here, even further driving home the, the point in chapter 1, begins in verse number 6. Well, excuse me, verse number 4, actually. Verse number 4, where we see that Gomer conceived, and notice at the end of verse 3, bore him a son. He went and took Gomer, and she conceived and bore him a son. There are three children that are named in chapter 1, and all three of them carry out this message of God trying to convict or convince the people to return. The first one is Jezreel there, and it tells you each time what the name means. Jezreel means that God scatters or even God sows. The people of Israel, the children of Israel, are going to go into captivity. That's what the preaching is about. They're going to go into captivity or they're going to be scattered. And so here is this first child that comes onto the scene named Jezreel, which is going to you know, kind of explain what's going to take place. Then you move over to verse 6. Notice what it says. She conceived again and bore a daughter. Then God said to him, call her name Loruhamah which means no mercy. The New King James says in verse 6, I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel. Again, this commitment by God to exactly what he has said, punishing them for their sin. Can you imagine how scary that thought is? The God of heaven, the God that they know created the heavens and the earth, the God who has led their family, their history, their people out of Egypt has brought them to this point. The God of heaven is saying, I will have no mercy. Think about our relationships here on this earth. Maybe our children, we say, we're going to have no mercy on them. Or our spouse, some kind of fight, you know, no mercy. Boss or some kind of relationship like that says no mercy. That's one thing. Yet when it comes to maybe some kind of military might saying we will have no mercy, that's a whole nother level. And we just keep advancing that till we get to the God of heaven saying no mercy on the people. And that is the state here that, and trying to drive home this point about their condition. And then it mentions in verse 8 and 9, notice again, she conceived and bore a son. Then God, then God said, call his name Loami or Loamai, which means not my people that's the point you get to sometimes with someone we're not in a relationship anymore not my people I, I cannot continue this any long that's usually in our relationships whether it be addiction of some sort or something like that you know it's that last point for someone where you're trying to convince them of the problem that they have or the problem they've created and we get to that point we cannot be associated anymore not my people now I heard something in my studying of this, and I'd like to just share it with you for your consideration. But speaking of Gomer's unfaithfulness, the idea that she was a prostitute, she was unfaithful, you notice with the first child in verse number 3, it says she con conceived and bore him a son. You look in verses 6 and verse number 8, and it simply says she conceived. Is it possible that these last two children were not even Hosea's? It's possible. I don't mean to try to make doctrine and say that's exactly the case here, but if you've ever heard these names used before or thought about the relationship of Hosea and Gomer, it just causes you to think. Is it possible, 
And we can't know for sure. So again, not trying to kind of draw that line one more time there. But it is interesting to consider that maybe the possibility that through all of this, two of these children were not even uh, possibly belonging to Hosea because of Gomer's unfaithfulness. Let's look at one theme. If we could mention a theme, and again, just try to sum up all of these thoughts, we might say that the theme is spiritual adultery. Depending on the version that you have, if you have, I believe, probably the King James, you will find the words whoredom or whoring, of course, W-H-O-R-E or W-H-O-R-I-N-G, whoredom or whoring, or if you have a New King James, you may see harlot or harlotry 17 times in the book. It's God's way of emphasizing, of showing how he views their spiritual state. It is spiritual prostitution to any and every idol that's around. We think commonly we mention the name Baal, B-A-A-L, Baal, but any and every idol that they could find, that is who they would turn to. And there's so much descriptive language we don't have time so much descriptive language in this book explaining how they would turn to these idols instead of turning to God and yet sometimes we turn towards by the way our own relationships we should love our children we should love our spouses our parents our friends people around us but we sometimes put so much into that we forget about God we sometimes put so much into so many other things as opposed to turning to God. And every time we do, it's spiritual prostitution, spiritual adultery. And it is very, very, very serious to God. And we see that here in the book of Hosea. Israel's sin is depicted. If, if you're making notes, you might jot these verses down. If you're following along, that's fine. You might turn over. We'll look at, mention seven or eight or so passages here. But there are, again, very dis- descriptive such detailed word pictures to try to drive home this point. And if you're following along, let's look at a few together. Chapter 3 and verse number 1, of, co- of course, is the adulterous wife. And the adulterous wife who is mentioned there. Chapter 4 and verse number 16, Israel is described as a backsliding heifer or a stubborn calf. Again, looking at the version you may have in front of you. Chapter 6 and verse number 9. Chapter 6 and verse number 9, a troop of robbers or a band of robbers. Now, some of these are a little closer, chapter 7 and 8. Chapter 7 and verse 7, they are described as hot as an oven. They're always ready to engage in sin. That's a word, uh, a word, a picture of how their sin is depicted. Chapter 7 and verse 8, they are depicted as an unturned cake. Now, I didn't look at all the different versions. You know, I usually have a New King James. The New King James especially says in chapter 7 and verse 8, Ephraim. Uh, Don't get confused. That is Israel. That's the northern kingdom that is referred to as Ephraim here. So Ephraim, or Israel, is a cake unturned. They're cooked to death on one side, we might say, or I guess on the bottom, cooked to death. And on the top, they're raw. There's no balance in what they're doing. They're unturned cake. Chapter 7 and verse 11, like a silly dove chapter 7 and verse 16 like a deceitful bow or a treacherous bow the description here would be an idea of a bow that always misses the mark now to draw it into our language of course we do use bows today some people do to hunt but also like a gun if you had a gun maybe even a scope in particular and you use that scope to try to shoot something but every time you used it you knew that you couldn't trust it 
How much longer would you go along with that? How long would you use that scope that you could not trust? That is how Israel was. They were a deceitful bow, or again, a deceitful scope or a gun, we might say. Chapter 8 in verse number 8, they are vessels with no pleasure. And then again in chapter 8 in verse 9, a wild donkey. It goes on from there. Uh, I usually try to encourage you to read the book if you can. This is a fairly short one, and these minor prophets will. But if you don't have a particular schedule of reading and you're looking to go through something this week, read the book of Hosea. Read it a few times. Try to pick out these descriptive terms that are used. Let me give you one more way here. In chapter 7, verses 13 through 15, Chapter 7, verses 13 through 15, there are three things that are driven home in just a couple of verses. Chapter, uh, excuse me, verse 13, chapter 7, verse 13, because God says they have transgressed against me. Going backwards, destruction to them because they have transgressed against me. Verse 14, because they have rebelled against me. And then in verse number 15, because they have devised evil against me. How bad is Israel? They've transgressed against him, rebelled against him, and devised evil against him. Time and time again, they are caught up in this unfaithfulness. And I like the way that one person said it. When we look at Israel, Israel's folly might be that they forgot God and they forgot God's law. Look in chapter 5 and verse number 3. They forgot God and forgot forgot God's law. Chapter 5, verse 3, I know Ephraim, there's that descriptive word again, but Israel, Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you commit harlotry, Israel is defiled. God says, I know you. You can pretend to hide, you can try to cover it up, but I know you. And they forgot him, and they forgot his law. That's Israel's folly, but you know what's interesting? In today's world, today's folly, People forget all about God, and then they act as if they can fool God with a false pretense of faithfulness. They act as, act, act as if they can trick him. Is that not what happens so often in these United States and even around the world? But people want to act one way or, or say one way, but then do something completely different. And that is the same folly that Israel was in. Forgetting God and forgetting his law, we do the same thing. We forget him but we act as if we can trick him. And he says to Israel in chapter 5 and verse 3 there, I know you. I know you. You can't hide from me. You are full of idolatry. You are defiled. And the same is true for us very often today. As we get ready to conclude, I've got three lessons. There's only one in your outline if you're making notes on the bulletin there. But I've got two more before we get to the last one. So three in total. Number one, we cannot avoid reaping what we have sowed or sown. Hosea chapter 8 and verse 7. Hosea chapter 8 and verse number 7. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. They, the stalk has no bud. It shall never produce meal. If it should produce, aliens would swallow it up. And it continues down through verse 8, but Israel is swallowed up. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. By the way, a lot of these points these applications each month when we look at a book of the month there's an old testament example from the book but it's a new testament example as well galatians chapter 6 in verses 7 and 8 galatians 6 verse 7 paul says do not be deceived god is not mocked 
For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. It was said in the Old Testament in the days of Hosea. It's said in the New Testament in the days of Paul. And it's being said again right here in 2022. And it'll be said as long as man is living and God and Jesus does not return. It'll be said again and again as long as man continues to live. That we sometimes feel as if we can get by with things. Maybe we do something or commit sin and we go a while. Weeks, months, years before anything happens. But we cannot avoid reaping what we've sown. That's exactly a natural scientific process. And absolutely when it comes to God as well. The children of Israel, they sowed the wind and reaped the whirlwind. What a warning it should be for us as we think about what they were going through, what they did, and how we should be different from that. And we need to recognize this lesson from the book of Hosea. Number two, our Heavenly Father allows us to be disciplined, but He loves us even when we are in rebellion. Go back to chapter 2, Hosea chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Verses 14 really through the rest of the chapter, which is 23, 14 through 23. God's mercy is shown on his people here. And we recognize that God does allow us to be disciplined, but he loves us even when we are in rebellion to him. How often did the children of Israel hear these warnings? They did not heed them. I don't know if they didn't believe. You would hope that they would, but they don't think it'll happen. They take comfort in the temple. We've talked about that through several of these uh, prophets, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, they would cry out. They would take comfort in the temple. But God does allow us to be disciplined. He does allow sometimes bad things to happen to us or bad things happen to us because of our own choices. But even when we are in rebellion, he still loves us. Can I ask you to maybe hold a place there and go over to Romans as we think about the New Testament for just a moment. Romans chapter 3 and verse 25 first. Romans three twenty-five. Paul would write here and say, Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Go over to chapter 5 and verses 6 through 10. You know these well. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How often do we treat our spouse, our children, or some kind of relationship like they have to do enough in order for us to do good for them? There are some times where discipline is certainly needed in a relationship. Don't, don't misunderstand me there. But we recognize the example that God set for us. He still loves us, even when we're in rebellion. He is not pleased with our rebellion, and he will allow us to be disciplined, but he does still love us, and we see that word picture here in Hosea chapter 2. Third and finally this afternoon, ignorance of God's word threatens our spiritual lives, and I might add to the end of that, always, always. Hosea chapter 4 and verse number 6. You know it, even if you're not aware of where the passage is. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will also will reject you from being priests for me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. 
My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. We touched on it this morning, and we know it to be true. So many people today simply go by their feeling. They go by what they think or feel today. And we look around us, and the culture has certainly changed. Things have shifted. Things have changed. We talked in our adult, young adult and college class uh, last week, it was, about uh, sometimes how some particular matter if you kind of look at left and right, some particular matter, there's usually a window. It's called the Overton window in, in sort of studies, but, but the Overton window about things that are acceptable. The problem is, as things change and shift, that kind of changes sometimes, and we get further and further away from the Word of God. People try to stay in that window of what is acceptable, but as that shifts, because, of course, the prime example of we think about in our culture, in our country, is the idea of like homosexuality. There was a time where that window was maybe in the middle, or we might even say further to the right. It was unacceptable, and as that shifted, then it's become more acceptable. And the problem is, as we try to stay in that window, we get closer and closer to things that are not right. We get further and further away from God because of what people think, because of what people feel. That window always changes. That's not what we're after. We're after the accuracy that we touched on this morning when it comes to the Word of God. The ignorance of God's Word threatens our spiritual lives always as we said this morning and i appreciate your kind comments about the lesson uh, i think jeff and i were talking afterwards and i told him i said you know uh, nobody expects everyone to leave this morning and remember the greek word that was used you know for this the city officials or whatever i i don't think that someone very often is going to come up to you and say hey did you know about this word and how how luke's the only one that uses it that's probably not going to happen but almost everyone who, who mentioned the lesson said, I feel built up just by hearing those things. I feel encouraged just by thinking those things because you may not have it all memorized. You're not going to be like me. You're not going to be a science uh, or medical you know, doctor or understand all those things right immediately about the Word of God. But we're just simply built up by a lot of little things that go into it that prove it to be accurate. And when we are aware of it, it strengthens us. I don't have to have it all memorized. Don't have to be able to regurgitate it just on a whim, but we need to be able to be aware of it and share it with others. That comes from study. That comes from always being prepared. As we talked about 2 Timothy 2.15 this morning, handling aright the word of God accurately. It gives us comfort and peace, and we learn that from the book of Hosea, even as we've talked about here. I hope that this and these lessons are encouraging to you in just a short and simple way. I know we kind of take a very high a very quick overlook at the book. You can study some more on your own. I can give you some examples of things you can look at and, and suggestions if you'd like to know more. But we certainly can learn from the children of Israel. And just like we learn in our history books sometimes at school, if we don't learn from the children of Israel, we're probably going to repeat the same things than we very often do. This afternoon, as we conclude this lesson, as we said, with Hosea and all the prophets, they simply are pointing towards the Messiah. And we want to point towards the Messiah even now as well. If you're here this afternoon and you're not a child of God, it is the Messiah's blood that can wash away your sins. And just as Hosea was pointing towards that, we point you towards Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. The opportunity that he made possible for us to have our sins washed away by his blood. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we'd be singing to encourage you. If you are here, you're a Christian but you've wandered away fallen away or maybe you're running away from God as the children of Israel were doing you can come back to him we're thankful for his second law of pardon even in this moment that we can sing to encourage one another we don't want you to leave with those cares and concerns with 
being in a wrong relationship with God, be faithful to him. Be in a right relationship or make it right, even now as we stand together and as we sing.